If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When we see the photos in color, we can kind of create a bridge between the past and the present, and we can feel more uh, intimate uh, related to the people and the events that we are seeing. Colorization adds something that's both dangerous and powerful to history. And, and uh, you know, history we, we often think of as an analytical discipline, and color adds emotion, like an emotional response. That was Dan Jones and Marina Amaral talking about how colorized images can give us an insight into history. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. One of this year's most high-profile and distinctive book releases has been The Colour of Time, which chronicles the history of the world from the mid-19th to mid-20th century, using 200 photographs that have been painstakingly colourised by the Brazilian artist Marina Amaral. The images are accompanied by a narrative written by the best-selling popular historian Dan Jones. Marina paid a visit to the UK earlier this year, and she and Dan met up with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, in a bookshop in London, to discuss their innovative project. Hi, Marina and Dan. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. So this book that you've written together, um, it tells the story of the world from 1850 to 1960 through this beautiful range of colourised historical photographs. Um, It covers a broad span of history and a broad range of locations. So we've got Queen Victoria, we've got the birth of the Raj, We've got the moment Howard Carter discovered Tutankhamun's tomb, or opened it up, rather. So starting with you, Marina, I mean, you're the digital colourist. What started this passion of yours? Um, So my mother is a historian, so I actually grew up seeing her always surrounded by books and watching documentaries and movies all the time. And she never... Uh, kind of forced me to read the books and watch the same documentaries that she was watching at the time. But I think it was kind of natural for me to follow her path. And uh, since I was really young, I always loved history. And uh, I had a blog in 2015, and I needed someone to to create some uh, graphic images for me to use there. So I didn't know anybody. And uh, I had to teach myself how to use Photoshop in order to create the images that I needed. One day I found a collection of World War II photos in color in a history forum, and uh, I decided that I wanted to try to reproduce the technique. And um, at that point, I had no idea what I was doing. I kind of spent a lot of time exploring the software and trying to understand uh, how I would be able to reproduce the same effect and uh, trying to figure out what 
should be the best tool to do that and the best Photoshop tool to do another thing. And eventually I was able to develop my own techniques and create my own workflow and feel comfortable with the way I was doing things. Then my work went viral on the internet and I became a digital colorist, so it was not planned at all. And what was the, what was the moment you went viral? Was it a particular photograph? Yeah, it was the photograph of Lewis Powell, one of the conspirators of the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. And it was how Dan found me in 2015, I guess. Yeah. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 2015. So Dan, tell us a bit about yeah, how you came across Marina's work. Yeah. Um, like many writers, I spend quite a lot of time uh, procrastinating. And in that sense, uh, social media is a godsend because it's an unlimited form of fascinating things that are not the fascinating thing you're supposed to be doing. Um, and I was writing, a, I think, a book about the Templars and uh, I was sort of lurking on Twitter and I saw people retweeting the photo Marina just mentioned, which is a portrait taken by Alexander Gardner in 1865 of Lewis Powell, part of John Wilkes Booth's conspiracy to kill Lincoln. And it kind of looks like, like a GQ cover or um, a sort of one of the photos my children like of, uh, of the boys from One Direction. Um, yeah, it has an incredibly modern 21st century sensibility, uh, which is partly coincidental and I think partly deliberate. Um, it's a mugshot. It's a great photo in black and white by Gardner, who was one of the great, you know, preeminent photos photographers of the American Civil War but colorized I mean the, I can still remember the experience of seeing it for the first time where Marina's caption you know explained that it was from 1865 and yet it looked so modern and there's a strange sort of like kind of short circuit something in your brain to see people not necessarily images but people from that age in color it just it, it just sort of punches through the wall um, that, that's often there in black and white. And so we got in touch, or I got in touch with Marina on Twitter and we just started talking and uh, I suggested that, I, well, first of all, I wondered when she was doing a book and she said she wasn't. So I suggested to Anthony Cheatham, who's the chairman of Head of Zeus, who, who, are, the, who are the publishers of my books and, and this book, uh, that he should sign Marina before someone else did. Um, <laughs> And fortunately, Anthony listened to my advice and suggested that we do a book together. And I thought, yeah, yeah, fine. That'll be, you know... Six same. months. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought it would be three months. I thought, this short, short project. Oh, when I'm on the train, I'll just bash out these captions. But of course, uh, it turned into a two-year project, really, a little more, um, because the amount of work that, has, that we've put into creating a book that is more than just a selection of colorized photographs that would have been great because marina is great but a book that is a selection of photographs that tells a story that tells a global history that functions both as a book that's beautiful to open and look at and to read at any given page but can also be read from start to finish as a history of the world from the crimean war to the cold war from the steam age to the space age like that yeah that was weirdly quite a lot of work yeah <laughs> uh, well i read you've looked at something like probably around 10,000 photos and yeah. there's, there's 200 photos in the book so that must have taken a considerable amount of narrowing yeah, down. It was horrible. <laughs> it was really awful. Yeah. How did you, what, what was your process Marina? What makes a good photo for um, you? It really depends. I'm 
always interested by the history behind the photos. So that's the first thing that I think when I'm selecting the images. But in this case, we had to think about the technical aspects as well, because we needed to print them and to enlarge the photos and see them in various sizes. So we had to consider many aspects that I usually don't because my work is uh, published on the internet. So I don't have to uh, pay a lot of attention to this. And that's what made the whole process a lot difficult because we had a list of topics that we wanted to cover in the book, but it was so hard to find photos to cover each of these subjects. So Dan had a lot of trouble trying to conciliate both things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of the selection, how do you sit down and design a book like this? Last time we were doing the podcast, I was talking to you about story architecture and, and book architecture and a big, a massive part of the of this book was uh, of my role in this book because Marina's really the, sort of the, the genius but my role was to kind of create a superstructure so that this was a story rather than a series of random images that in those 200 beats um, you, you got a meaningful story that wasn't just totally Eurocentric or European and American, that wasn't male dominated or dominated by big white men with enormous bushy beards, although inevitably there are some of those. That was the fashion for a long period. Um, so it had to be a global history. It had to be a history in which the pictures could be, could work sequentially. And then, you know, I had to, I had to learn Marina's, or some part of Marina's craft and say, okay, I'm looking at, let's say, what have we got around us? We want a photo or about the birth of aviation. Uh, which photo of the Wright brothers, who let's say you know would be the natural topic, is is going to tell that story as a photo? But then, which one is going to colorize? And I don't know that. Yeah. I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm not, not an artist. I once got eight out of ten for a picture of a dog <laughs> I'd done in school. Like that's the limit of my artistic sensibility. <laughs> Marina has a brilliant artistic sensibility, but there's a, a big technical side that we had to start appreciating if there aren't enough pixels in this image, it's not going to repro reproduce properly in the book. If it's not of a certain quality, it's not going to colorize properly. Um, it's just a lot of technical stuff to consider. And if one photo went wrong for a technical reason, then I'd be standing looking at my nice cork board, which I told you about in the other podcast, which had all a whole chapter arranged in it, thinking, well, that whole chapter's just fallen to pieces because yeah. that was the photo I was relying on to anchor it. And when that happened, I'd, I mean, I'm not given to fits of peak or temper, but I would become irate <laughs> in my own little way. Not with Marina, I hasten to add. Just with, just with the vastness with the world, of the project. With the, with the vastness of the universe and the yeah. fact that it appears to be conspiring <laughs> against me. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So there's that <laughs> phrase, isn't there, that a picture tells a thousand words. What do you think that adding colour to an image brings to someone looking at it? How does it aid in our understanding of that time period? What, what, what do we get from a colour image that we don't get from a black and white image? I think it's much easier to relate to the people and the historical, historical events 
after we see them in color, because we live in a colorful world, so we are used to seeing everything color and vivid colors. And when we look at the black and white pictures, we kind of feel that that thing is old, so it's hard to create a connection and really understand what is, what is going on. So I think when we see the photos in color, we can kind of create a bridge between the past and the present, and we can feel more uh, intimate and related to the people and the events that we are seeing. Yeah, and that's basically what I try to do with my work, yeah. Would you have anything to add to that, Dan? I've always got something to add, Rachel. Um, <laughs> I think that colorization adds something that's both dangerous and powerful to history. And, and the, you know, history we, we often think of as an analytical discipline. Um, and colour adds emotion, like an emotional response. Yeah. And the natural criticism to that is that this can be distorting and it can be in some senses quote-unquote untruthful. But the advantages from eliciting an emotional response uh, from people who look at these incredible pictures of marinas um, is that you are drawn, whether you like it or not, into this story. And, you know, the listeners to this podcast... Um, notwithstanding, it is difficult to get people interested in history in, in a sort of broader sense. It's not, of course, it's not impossible, but it is a, it is a task. Um, and the, the normal criticism is that history is boring. Well, this shatters that. You know, you, you just have to look at any of the... We're sitting in Waterstones in Piccadilly and, and there's a whole bunch of the photos on the walls around us. And you just have to look at any of them and suddenly you're drawn to the incredible humanity that was always within this image that Marina's just sort of lifted to the surface. And it separates the hundred years that might be between you and that person in that photo. It just feels, yeah, I completely can get that, that feeling. Um, it's not... Colorizing historical photos isn't without its criticisms. I think you mentioned, like, there's a few people who say that it, would it's creating a lie because you don't you might not necessarily know what color you know what colors that person was wearing um, and histories about fact. What would your what would your response be to that? Uh, first of all, there is a lot of research involved. So to create this book, we had to reach out to many historians and experts to make sure that we were covering uh, as many details as we could in each picture and making sure that we had all the information that we needed to uh, reproduce the original colors, the accurate colors. And sometimes I have to make artistic choices, but. Uh, Every time someone says that I'm faking history or creating something that is not true, I always think that the photographer who took the picture, uh, he was seeing the events in color and he registered the scenes in black and white because he didn't have the technology to uh, register the, the people in the events in color as he was seeing them. So what I try to do is to offer a different perspective and try to give people the opportunity to see history from a colorful and more real perspective because that's how the world is. History was never uh, black and white. and we always have, uh, we always can come back to the original photos. They're not damaged in the process. So if we can have both, I don't know why we have to choose one or another. Yeah, and you've almost added the truth back in. Because like you yeah. said, the photographer, if he'd had access to a yeah. technology, to technology, yeah, yeah. probably, maybe yeah. not always, but would have taken a colour yeah, photo. Yeah, that's true. You know, all of 
this debate has gone on in history. I mean, well, since ever since I was a kid, when I was in my teens, um, Richard Evans had published um, a book called In Defense of History, and the, 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 there was a big sort of kind of historiographical argument going on about uh, the limits to which history could ever be objective and a sort of postmodernist critique of history, often parodied, but, but, but there nonetheless, that all history was subjective and therefore invalid. And this is just another version of that same argument, which is to say that all history is about taking a sort of morass of fact and, uh, and corralling it into some shape, which is in and of itself an artifice. It's artificial. That is the job of the historian, to, to bring an artificial order to a random selection of events. And this is, this is it in visual form. Now, it, I have no objection whatsoever to people saying, I don't like this, it ain't for me, uh, I want to see the black and white image because I feel that this is, this is adding something that wasn't there in the first place and it's not restorative. Fine, you know, don't buy the book. Or, you know, we can we'll go and photocopy it and, in black and white. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but yeah. it's fine. That's totally fine. And as Maureen says, the original black and white images have not been destroyed. But uh, in, in our roles as historians, as particularly as public historians, I think there is a, a degree of onus on us to, to do what I call outreach, which is to bring history to people who would otherwise pass it by. And, and the evidence of our own eyes, in more than one sense, tells us that people respond to this and they get interested in history where they might not otherwise have been. And for me, that's like, in that case, the ends justify the means. And with no point, at no point are we going around pretending that this is something that it is not, that it is, um, uh, I don't know. Well, it's interesting you said that because just before we started this interview, um, a nice man came in to have a bit, copy of the book signed and he said, oh, my, my two sons, who I think were 10 and 13, really loved this. And it's nice to hear that it's something that makes history interesting for the children who... Yes, he was a very nice man for saying yeah. that, wasn't he? He went up in my estimation. <laughs> uh, no, I think that you couldn't say anything that, that would make personally make me happier because uh, if this gets particularly... You know, there's a vulnerable age um, with regard to being interested in history that's often in your teens, and that's the point at which you meet people much later in their life, and they go, when I was a, a teenager, uh, history was so boring, I gave it up, and then usually or often don't come back until they're retired, you know, middle age. That's a lot of your life lost to, you know, or, or cut off from history, which we, of course, think is marvellous. Um, so if someone says, this has got my kids into history, yeah, please, thank you, God, this is great, this is exactly, thank you, Marina, not God, they're, they're not that far <laughs> removed. Um, thank you for saying that, that that's... That, there couldn't be a better piece of praise. So, the Except for the endorsement of BBC History magazine. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I think, seeing as this is a podcast and we'll have people listening to this who can't actually see any of the images in front of them, they might be in the car or um, at the gym, whatever takes their fancy, um, it might be nice to actually... Let's describe some of the images. So or let, let's talk about some of the images specifically. So, Marina, I know this is going to be such a challenge, but can you, can you pick maybe a couple of images from the book that you... that really, really speak to you in some way and just tell, tell me a bit about them? 
Um, I think we have one of Queen Victoria that is quite different because we can see her using a white dress and that's kind of unusual because the image that we have in mind when we think of Queen Victoria is the old lady using black Morning dresses. Clothes, yeah. Yes. So that one was really interesting to, to put on the book because we are giving people the opportunity to see her from a different perspective, like I said. Uh, it's a young woman. He looks amazing and the dress is stunning and is very different from what the image that we have in mind. So that one is really, really interesting for me. What do you think? Um, well, let's think of uh, a picture that a lot of the listeners of this podcast might have seen in its black and white form. So let's take Migrant Mother by Dorothea Lang, you know, one of the most famous photos of the 20th century. And um, it's of a migrant um, farm labourer called Florence Owens Thompson, who... Um, was with her children at the side of the road because her car had broken down uh, during the dust bowls of Great Depression here in the US. And you'll have seen the photo because she it, it's a very uh, close crop of her face with two of her children um, either side of her face. And uh, she's sort of looking into the middle distance and a look of sort of haunting distress on her face uh, and her children sort of burying their heads. And, it, you know, it was, it was partly taken for the purpose of showing the effect that the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, was having on ordinary Americans. Um, and in black and white, it's an incredibly piercing, very, very, very powerful image. And the reason I, I mentioned it is it's actually, it's, and this touches on something we've talked about already, in colour, it takes on an, an, another life. And it's almost like another layer of emotional intensity into what's already an incredibly affecting and moving photograph is there. Now, it's also one of the photos that I was most conflicted about when, when we put it in the book because it's so famous in black and white. It's such a famous It's an iconic image of the 20th century. And to change it so substantially makes you think, Wow, what are we doing to a great piece of art here? Is this vandalism or is this uh, is this a valid process? And I think that that's, but I think that's an interesting sort of thought process to go through, um, and it's a good test case, firstly for for whether you actually like colorization, but also for for bringing to the front of your mind what is being done here and what is its historical purpose, its historiographical purpose. Um, for me, it was yeah, one of the most interesting images from a purely sort of um, ethical point of view uh, within the book. I, I, I think it succeeds. I also absolutely adore Dorothea Lang's original photograph, yeah, which was in the Barbican in, in London recently. So, uh, and it's, so in that sense, it's also a good um, example of the fact that, yes, this has been colourised, but guess what? Yeah. <laughs> Dorothea Lang's photo is still there and, and you can appreciate both yeah. versions of it. I wanted to ask you, Marina, some practical questions okay. about the actual <laughs> process of colorizing. Okay. Um, how how long does it actually take you to? Do, I mean, is this how long is a piece of string? <laughs> uh, it really depends on the photo. Um, it can take me a simple portrait can take me forty minutes, and a more complex photo can take me five days or oh, wow. even weeks of work. So uh, it really depends. We had some in the book that took me probably almost a week to complete while others I did in two hours maybe. So it really depends on the amount of details that you have in the photo. There's like, obviously there's some very difficult 
photographs in the book. You've got pictures, you know, of, um, from inside concentration camps. And was it was it difficult working on those pictures, with, like staring at these, you know? And there's that, there's a graphic image actually of um, is it Mussolini? Um, yeah. Yeah. When just after he's been killed and I mean what's it like to look, like look at those kind of photos it was it difficult to, it is because it's impossible to keep looking at these photos for so many hours and don't create a emotional attachment to the subject um I always when I'm colorizing I'm always thinking on what kind of life they led or what happened to them after the photo was taken and uh it's really impossible to you stare at their faces for so many hours and don't feel connected to what I am seeing. And the Holocaust photos were particularly difficult. We had another one in the book that we decided to drop because it was too graphic and uh, we didn't want to be um, shocking people too much, but at the same time, we wanted to show what really happened. Uh, so it was kind of difficult to choose the right photo, but I think the one we have in the book, it's it, kind of iconic and uh, it looks even more disturbing in color. Yeah, we talked, uh, we've just been talking about the ethics of aesthetics, if you like, about, you know, uh, what's right to colorize and what's not right to colorize. There's also the ethics of what can, what can or should you include in a history of these times. And um, there were some photos that were just too, I just felt that they were too much. Uh, and yeah, I didn't want to, there have been some people have read the book and said, "Oh my goodness, this is just very depressing, isn't it?" Well, guess what? <laughs> Let me tell you what happened between 1850 and 1960. Um, there's a very fine line to be trodden, uh, particularly in in a book that's so visual and so essentially graphic, as to what can or should we show. And there's no answer. There's no you know that there is no rule book. You just have to sort of trust your instincts that we're pushing about as far as as we can and that I think that's particularly acute in this book because of what we've been talking about the, the way that colorization um humanizes um brings brings these images so much closer emotionally to the to the viewer that you have to be really really careful with how graphic and and um and horrible some of the images we include are without trying to sort of sanitize a, a history um, which is important specifically because of the horrors contained within it. What are some of the more positive images in the book that evoke? My byline photo is. Mm. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, that was too deadpan. That was, uh, I felt like you thought of that answer a little too know, quickly for my yeah, life. I've just been thinking about that all day. Uh, what about some of the, I think the, the images of the sort of technological advances and change and the birth of um, of uh, of air what do I mean flights you know aeroplanes space flight um, electrification of transport um, the the building of incredible monuments like the Statue yeah. of Liberty in Corcovado and um, in Rio. Yeah. Uh, the, we're looking at one just here in Waterstones, which is of um, Scott's expedition to Antarctica. Absolutely stunning photo taken through a sort of glacial um, structure. You know, the, the exploration and, and advances in travel and technology during this period were equally as, um, uh, as thrilling 
um, or, or thrilling in equal measure to the horror of the, the sort of war, imperialism and upheaval. Yeah, and what is interesting is that we can see how the technology improved over time. As you go flicking through the pages of the book, you can see how the quality of the photos is changing. So you can kind of perceive how the, the technique and the, the way people took the photos was improving over time. And that's a really interesting part of the book for me as well. So it's almost a, a history of how photography yeah. progressed yeah. in a way, yeah. even yeah. though that's not directly what well, it's about. Yeah, and that, there's a, that's a sort of a thread through the book that's, that's deliberately there so that, you know, the first photo of the, within the main run after the front matter, where there's a couple of photos, is of Roger Fenton turning up in the you know, great photographer of the 1850s, turning up in the Crimean War uh, with his horse-drawn darkroom, which had been converted from a, a wine merchant's wagon, which he was going to then sort of ride around the Crimea, taking these incredible images. And so, and the reason that's up there at the, at the very start of the narrative is because, in a sense, although this sort of is, is slightly below the surface, this is also a history of photography. And so, you, you know, you go from Roger Fenton and the, the sort of the, the greats of the 1850s all the way through to the Life magazine photographers of, 30, you know, from 36 onwards, you know, the, the uh, Eisenstadt and Margaret Burke White and Kappa and, you know, these absolute legends uh, and this incredibly brilliant Dorothy Lang, who we've already mentioned. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's an element to which it is a history of photography as well. That was Dan Jones and Marina Amaral. The Colour of Time is out now, published by Head of Zeus. And that's about all for today, but do listen in on Thursday when we'll be talking about Napoleon with Adam Zamoyski. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.